So this morning we're looking at the second letter of uh, the seven letters to the to the churches in the book of Revelation. The letter today, the letter to the church in Smyrna, is the shortest letter of the sermon, of the seven letters. Most of these letters have some corrective, some instruction, rebuke, critique, if you will, of what's happening in the churches. This is one of only two churches that has no rebuke, no correction, and no weakness. It's also one of only two churches that where the letters are written to without the phrase, I know your deeds. Smyrna itself, uh, back in the day, was known as a very beautiful city. It was kind of an architectural centerpiece uh, for this area of Asia Minor, this what is modern Turkey. A uh, very attractive city. Um, architecture, temples, civic buildings, and so on. It was a very important city when it came to the whole Roman Empire, and, and often um, officials from Rome would make their way through Smyrna, and there were certain rituals and celebrations, but it was kind of a, a very civic-minded kind of city. And as I said, emperors and other officials would kind of always make a point of stopping there. So you think of royal visits, right? You think of when uh, the queen or uh, some member of the royal family visits and happens in Regina fairly regularly because of the, of the connection, right? But uh, that kind of ceremony and, and ritual was very common in the city of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna today is one of the, I think the only of the seven cities that are, letters are written to, it's the only city that is, there's still a city on that site. The rest of the sites are pretty much all archaeological ruins and uh, archaeological digs. But the city of Smyrna, known today as Izmir in western Turkey, is actually the third largest city in the country of Turkey. Istanbul is the largest city, I think it's about 15 million people, then Ankara and then Izmir. So the, the city is, is kind of still there, functional. In fact, the city history of the settlements in this spot and in this site go back over 8,000 years. So it's a very interesting and a very significant uh, city then and now in, the, in what we know today as Turkey. So let's look at this letter to the church at Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2. In your, if you're working with these uh, Bibles from the pew, page 1138, right near the back, uh, the letter from John, from Jesus, to the church at Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And you notice a number of the songs Matt and the team led us in this morning relate to Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are actually a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who are victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, as each of these letters uh, do at the beginning, they pick up something from the vision of Jesus that John saw in chapter 1. And we talked about that, and we talked about the uniqueness and the greatness and the magnificence of who Jesus is, and 
John picks up a couple things related to that vision that relate to the church in Smyrna. The first one he talks about is Jesus as the first and last. The other phrase that was used in chapter 1 was Jesus as Alpha and Omega, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end, first and last. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is the God of history, history past, history present, history future. He is first and last. He is the one who died and came to life again. And interesting, in the history of the city of Smyrna, that might resonate not only with the people in terms of who Jesus is, but in terms of who they were as a city. Back around 600 B.C., they were wiped out. They were um, one of the local uh, rulers, uh, wiped out the city of Smyrna. And so around 600 B.C., uh, they were totally demolished, totally destroyed. But thanks to Alexander the Great, about 300 years later, uh, he wanted the city reestablished, he wanted the city rebuilt, and lo and behold, uh, the city of Smyrna came to life again. There are three things that Jesus knows about what's going on in the church at Smyrna. Three things he knows. He knows their affliction, he knows their suffering, he knows about their poverty, and he knows about the slander. And as, as we put those three things together, it's not hard to see, and even in these few few verses, the difficulty and the challenge of being a follower of Jesus in this city at the end of the first century. It's an extremely difficult situation for Christians in Smyrna. And it seems like they were a rather small group facing very strong opposition. We have no records going back that far into the first century to have even kind of a sense of how many house churches there were or how many Christians there were in the city of Smyrna, but it seems like it was a very small group. Uh, they were under great stress, under great affliction, under great tribulation, but they were also poor. We've talked about this before, but being a follower of Jesus in the first century was, was very challenging. Um, if you didn't worship the pagan gods, if you didn't worship the emperor, uh, you know, back in the day, the challenge was uh, Caesar is Lord. Well, follower of Jesus is not going to say Caesar is Lord and remain faithful to Jesus. And so they would lose their jobs, they would lose their property, uh, their shops wouldn't get the business. Um, that whole pagan environment was a real challenge. So it's not surprising that um, followers of Jesus were often poor. Many of the followers of Jesus came from the poor areas, not all, but the poor, poor uh, sections of society as well. So there, there's poverty. So there's strong opposition. There's poverty, and then there's slander. If you've ever had to face the challenge of slander, uh, false false rumors, false accusations, people saying things about you, well, just try getting out from under that rock. Accusations, lies, labels, false rumors, and all that is the situation. And yet, in spite of all that, notice what Jesus says about their condition. Notice Jesus' evaluation of their condition. Verse 9, I know your afflictions, your poverty, yet you are rich. Numbers don't matter. Facilities don't matter. The dollars in your bank account don't matter. And here's this small, fragile church that's just kind of seems scraping bottom to human estimates and human appraisals. 
But yet God looks at this church and says, you are rich. Now there's going to be another church where, who thinks they're rich and he's going to say, you're not, you're poor. But this church is applauded, if you will, by the Lord saying, you are rich. Good time to ask ourselves, what, what do we think a healthy church is? What does a healthy church look like? Um, yeah, they, they didn't have a lot here. Uh, stress, pressure, poverty, and uh, lies and, and false rumors about them. Or changes, I hope, a little bit our understanding of what a healthy church might look like. These people very much find themselves, as you think about that, though, these people very much find themselves in the path of Jesus. As, as we have the communion elements sitting here, the bread and the cup and the, and the whole journey of Jesus to the cross, uh, the people, the followers of Jesus in Smyrna certainly find themselves following in the path of Jesus. It echoes the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death, right? We like the first part of that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, but then Paul goes on to say, and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable. Like, to us, it seems like we're going downhill here, right? We, we would think power of the resurrection would sort of be the pinnacle. It's like that's, that's where we all want to live, in the power of his resurrection. But Paul, as he writes from prison to the Philippians, says, no, that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. The tension, the paradox of those two, being made conformable unto his death. And you know what? For the church at Smyrna, actually, it's going to get worse. About 60 years later, in 155 A.D., after um, this letter came to the church, uh, there's historical records about Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. And if, if you've taken church history, you probably glazed over at that point, but it's usually talked about in most Bible college um, passages, uh, accounts of church history, the burning of Polycarp in 155. So it's not getting any better. There's going to be the ebbs and the flows, the comings and the goings of the persecution and the hardship. Did you notice what the apostle said in verse 10? Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Not just do not be afraid, but the suffering is going to continue. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. It's one thing to say to somebody, do not fear. It's another thing to say, do not fear and here's what's going to happen. Right? You're going to suffer. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison. And back in the day, you were in prison for two reasons. One is because you were awaiting trial, or one was because you were awaiting execution. Those were the only two reasons you were in prison. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. But it's not a very pretty tunnel, is it? It's going to get worse. Do not be afraid of what you will suffer. Interesting, the Church of Philadelphia is suffering as well. But the letter tells them that, that God will see them through their suffering. 
He will keep you from the hour of trial, it says to the church in Philadelphia, but not for the church at Smyrna. They are told, be faithful to the point of death. The last couple of years, in November, we've taken time to look at the persecuted church, and we take time for the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. But, you know, it's one thing when it's over there. It's one thing when it's in um, some Middle Eastern country. It's one thing when it's in um, the other side of the world, right? But they're told it's coming here. They're the church in Smyrna said, it's coming here. It's staying here. It's not going anywhere. And they're going to have to endure it. Be faithful to the point of death. Now there's promise. There's hope, right? Be faithful to the point of death. The end of verse 10. And I will give you, as your, give you life as your victor's crown. You may die, but it's not the end. You may die, but this isn't going to kill you. See, the opposition was pretty strong from, uh, it seems, a sector of, of the Jewish population of the city. Um, back to verse 9. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Um, strong opposition from, from, it seems, at least one particular synagogue in Smyrna. Not every Jew in Smyrna, but a certain group of Jews, it seems, uh, were strongly in opposition to the followers of Jesus. And as the Apostle says here, they are not really Jews because they are, in the end, opposing God. So they're not really Jews. They are the synagogue of Satan. They are uh, instruments of Satan himself, kind of what Jesus said in his debate with the Pharisees. You are from your father, the devil, back in John chapter 8. And the same group happens, the same words are used in the, in the letter to the church of Philadelphia. So there is, there is a strong Jewish opposition from, from a sector of the Jewish people. Now, as I read these things in Scripture, um, it becomes kind of a sad commentary because what happens in the early church is after the New Testament is completed, there becomes a very anti-Semitic tone in the early church for years, for hundreds of years. Um, as church leaders took these kind of passages and they went back to the, to the book of Acts where it talks, where the apostles say uh, to the Jews, you crucified Jesus. And so a very strong anti-Semitic uh, bias prejudice became one of the more sinful characteristics of the early church for hundreds, hundreds of years. I'm sure you saw this stuff on the news about the 75th anniversary of the Holocaust. And, you know, just FYI, white supremacists use verses like this. White supremacists use verses like this to validate their anti-Semitic views. And this kind of feed that racist tendency, and that prejudicial tendency. That's not, that's not where this goes, and that's not where this should go. But it is a sad commentary on the early church that anti-Semitism became sort of one of the, one of the telltale signs of, uh, of their approach to the Jewish people. 
The other thing here is that uh, this suffering, this particular suffering, is going to last, we are told, for 10 days. The end of verse 10. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. Nobody really knows what that... Again, Revelation has all kinds of um, symbolic sort of representations and numbers. Some numbers we can figure out. Some numbers we can't figure out. Um, but no one that I'm aware of. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's probably, sorry, a TV evangelist who knows exactly what the 10 days mean, but the people that I was checking with, uh, no one really knows what the 10 days mean. Probably just a short, a short period of time. Probably a limited period of time, but as I said, it's, it's going to come back, and the, the opposition is going to continue, and 60 years later, uh, the leader of the church in Smyrna is burned. Uh, for his faith. What I find interesting as I read this very short letter is sort of catching the atmosphere, uh, the conditions, the setting, and, and it kind of all revolves around suffering and sacrifice and death. There, there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, right? There is the promise of you, you, I will give you life as the victor's crown. Those who are victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. But in the process of getting there, it's very bleak. It's it's very dark. It's it's very it's very hurtful. The aroma of death is kind of through all, all all that's going on in the city of Smyrna. Then I caught something that reminded me that the word Smyrna is the Greek word for a word we're very familiar with. Uh, it came up in the kids' Christmas program back on December 15th. The word Smyrna can either be the city or it can be myrrh. It's, it's the Greek word for myrrh. The, the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Perfume. And if you know how the story of Jesus continues, you know, John tells us, as, as Nicodemus is burying Jesus, he brings a 75-pound pail, your 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to anoint the body of Jesus. 75 pounds. That's a five-gallon pail and then another half a pail. How about you? I have a hard enough time with a five-gallon pail. Never mind a seven-and-a-half-gallon pail. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes aloes to anoint, to, in a, in a way, embalm the body of Jesus. So the, this aroma of death is, is even in the name of the city. And then you think about Nicodemus and the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and then I think about Jesus being anointed. His feet being washed and Jesus being anointed, and, and literally for, for his upcoming crucifixion. And this, this aroma of death just kind of permeates the whole, the whole thing here. Well, yeah, he's, he's the city, the followers of Jesus are promised a victor's crown. The end of verse 10, I will give you life. I will give you the crown of life. Now, there's two kinds of crowns. There's, uh, in the Greek, it's called a diadema, which diadem, right? So it's glittery kings crown, the royal crown. The other kind of crown is called a Stephanos. If uh, your name is Stephen, uh, the Greek word is Stephanos, which means crown. 
But that's a that's a wreath of olive branches. That's a that's an athletic thing. That that's a uh, a civic honor, perhaps. Um, I also read that these things are sometimes made of celery. That just didn't strike me as a, a winner's crown, right? A wreath made of celery. I don't know. Next time you pull the old celery out of the fridge, but that's uh, olive branches and celery were some of the things they used to make these crowns, right? So, so that's the picture. I, you know, that, that's that's not our image of a crown. You know, all this is, I think it's kind of humbling. Um, the fragrance of death hangs all over this church from a human perspective. But that, what, is, what does God say? You are rich. Fragrance of death hangs all over this church. But it is also the fragrance of death is the fragrance of life in God's perspective. Jesus said to his followers, take up your cross and follow me. Fragrance of death hangs over those of us who follow Jesus. Luke takes another step further. He says, take up, quotes Jesus saying, take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus says in John chapter 12, except the kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains alone, a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. The one who loses their life for my sake, Jesus said, will find it. So it, it's, it's a side of the Christian life that we don't talk about very much, right? Because we want to we think of the victory. We want to think of the, how the story ends. But in the process of getting there, it is extremely, extremely difficult. It is a hard road. Paul says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Gary, in his opening prayer, talked about there is nothing that we cannot handle for you. There is nothing that we cannot handle through Jesus. There is, there is no solution. There is no strategic steps for the church in Smyrna to take here. They just need to receive it. They just need to receive what is coming and accept it and endure it and bear it. Jesus does not promise us an easy life. He encourages the church in Smyrna to be faithful to the point of death. That's easier to read than it is to embrace. It just is. If you're working in the, the church Bibles, turn to page uh, 1043, page 1043, Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Page 1043. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. I think that's the goal, right? I think that's another way of what Paul's saying, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conform unto his death because the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of God, lives within me. And the one who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Path of the Spirit is the path of life. It's interesting this whole thing in Revelation with the seven lamps and the seven lampstands and um, the seven churches and all that that we talked about it in chapter one. It goes back to Zechariah chapter four. I already had Zechariah four reference this morning. Not by might, but by power but by my spirit, the Lord of hosts. It just, it just reminds us, right, that, that it, it's not up to us. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not by might. Financial, military, political power. Not by might, nor by power but by my spirit. It's not my determination. It's not my will. It's not my desire that's going to pull anything on. By the spirit. That's why understanding how the spirit works is so important to us. But I think one of the things, as Matt and the team make their way back to lead us in a song before communion, one of the ways I think the spirit works is to bring us to the end of ourselves. And, and, and as we come to the communion table with the, the bread, it speaks about the body of Jesus and the cup that speaks about the blood of Jesus. And we sang, sang lots this morning about Jesus' blood and Jesus' righteousness and the sacrifice and what that all means. The Spirit gives life. But I got to give my life to the Spirit. I got to give my life to God. Since it's anniversary year, I didn't think it was too out of line to go to an old song. I thought it was an old song, but maybe not an old song. So we're going back in time. It's actually in hymn book number 162, if you want the feel of holding a hymn book. Um, grab the hymn book, turn to number 162. The verses may be different. We might have a different version on the slides. That's okay. But it starts out with... Or the phrase that caught me was, Lord Jesus, I long to be perfectly whole. I want thee forever to live in my soul. Just a, a prayer where we just kind of lay it all out and say, yeah, that's what I want. From this point on, from this point on, this is what I want. I want God's evaluation, no matter what the earthly evaluation may be, no matter what the human evaluation may be. 
I want God's evaluation of us as a church to be, you are rich. Not the denomination's evaluation, not past pastors' evaluations, not past board members' evaluation. I want God's evaluation. And it's something that we constantly need to do because we constantly get off track and see things not from God's person.